This is part two with Hank Dunn, an ordained healthcare chaplain who, during his career of over 30 years, has helped countless patients and their families navigate healthcare decisions during serious illness. He's also the author of Hard Choices for Loving People. This is a must-read for anyone facing end-of-life decisions. Here's more of my conversation with Hank Dunn on this episode of the Executor Help Podcast. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Edy. How important is time when it comes to making these decisions for the family? Very good question. And I will, let me just slip over into talking about living wills a little bit, because there's actually been some criticisms of living wills that they don't really help that much. So I have a living will. I've had it for, I don't know, 20, 30 years I've had a living will, but it's a, just a general, I don't want anything to keep me alive if I'm dying. The problem with that is it's not very specific. And so what you do a living will maybe 30 years ago, and now you're having to face particular decisions it's not as 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 accurate so that piece of time what i think about my dying now that i'm still now at 75 basically a healthy person i'm not sure exactly what decision i would make let's say when i'm 85 and i have advanced cancer i and your mom is a good example of not knowing exactly what she was going to do and then she decided to do that she might have said years ago if i have cancer i'm never going to do surgery well she decided at the time so this time element of what when you're now faced with a specific decision with a specific condition and that's where it's important to realize that you might make a different decision than you made years before. So back talking about the document, as long as you are competent and have decisional capacity, you can make any decision you want. You can change what you put in the living will at any time. But then once you become unable to make the decision, then of course falls on the family. And so that is do you go back on what mom said years ago? I'm never going to have surgery. And now she says she is. So she changed her mind. Now, how do we figure that out if she can't make decisions for herself? And so families are are, are, are now put in a situation. And I, I have uh, some questions in my book. And one of them that I actually made a change on a couple of years ago. What does the patient think about their current their current condition? Because we make a living will when we're basically a healthy, competent person. And now I'm demented, incontinent of bowel and bladder. What would I th- what would the patient think in that situation? So time mm-hmm. figures in that as, as uh, over time, things change and people's opinion of what they want change. And uh, I mean, back to m- the stories about these families who eventually came around to letting the, the patient die. It took a little, it took time. We had a couple families at the nursing home who uh, 
their family member was on a feeding tube for a couple of years, these two different patients, and they eventually chose to withdraw the feeding tube and let them die. And I called three um, family members of these two families, and uh, I talked to two of the sons, all, I mean, all three of them. I said, was there anything we could have done differently to help you make this decision sooner? And all three of them said, no, it just takes time. And so it took time for them to get to that place from putting the feeding tube in to withdrawing the feeding tube. It took time. Would you say that, because when you're saying with the living will, that you know you you're making those decisions when you're 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 sound mind you're you're relatively healthy but wouldn't a living will play the role of at least it's a guideline it's a starting point for the family to get an idea of what the individual you know they've got to make decisions of they they've got an idea of what they were what they would like and it's it should take away a little bit of ambiguity. Well, I really don't know what mom wanted. We're letting this the paperwork do the talking of what they want going forward. And it, it'll take away from hopefully some family fights. Well, yeah. And in my case with my mother, yes, she had a, uh, what we call a mandate of incapacity or a, also a, a living will. She always said that she didn't want to be kept alive uh, artificially. She didn't want, if, if there was any sort of medication would hasten her death, she would go ahead. But when she was also asked that choice, do you want to have that surgery? She was, her first response was no. And then she could see on our faces that we want her to have it, but we said, whatever you want, we'll go along with. So she changed her mind, but I think at least it made it easier. Doesn't it uh, living well make it easier on families to give them a little. All right, let's let, let's let's rewind your story. <clears throat> okay, a little a little bit. Let's say your have... mother. Let's say your mother. Yeah. Could not make a decision for herself, and you and your siblings had to decide whether to do the surgery or not. Would that living will have helped you in that decision? What did she? She had a living will, right? Yes. Your mother. Okay. Yes. Tell me, would the living will have helped you make that decision? I, I, I would say so because again, we're in a we're in, we're in a place where we never thought we'd ever be. I mean, we don't think about okay. your parents dying, so it okay. gave us a little bit of comfort. Okay, so and you think you would have all decided not to do the surgery if or to what, do if, it if, if if that's what it says in her living will, that's what she wanted. I would have gone along with her wishes. Okay. Here's the problem with the living will. It probably didn't have in it. If I get to a place where I have cancer, I would like to have surgery. Um, it probably wasn't that specific. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing. It right. Most, right. most living wills are pretty general. Right. So in some ways, that document would have been no help to you. It, if, it generally says, I don't want anything to prolong my dying, but this might prolong her living to do the surgery. I, I, the point is this, living wills have to be interpreted by both the physician and the family when the patient can't speak for themselves. Correct. And so in many ways, they're not that helpful. Now, there are, and, and I know- But would you agree this, it's a starting point? It's somewhere- and Generally, yeah. Yeah, if the, if the patient- had, taken the time 
to say, I don't want anything artificially prolonged really when I'm dying, prolong my life when I'm dying. The, the problem is, when am I dying? At what point? Mm-hmm. We say, I'm dying. And, you know, and, and docs are, like I said, they're pretty much optimists. It's, oh, your mom's not, you know, this, this is not the end. So but let's but let me let but, me just. OK, go ahead. Uh, there's there's a, a couple of things. I have a living will. I'm glad I have it. It's pretty much the general living will. You can there are living wills now. I know they're available in several places here in the States, and I'm sure some people in Canada uh, have them too, that get more specific. And they say, if I'm in this, like I have a a, a dementia, I don't want this, this, and this. If I have a life-limiting illness that, you know, I'm going to have more than six months to live, I do or do not want. So it gets a little more specific. Those can be okay. The most important thing anybody can do as far as pieces of paper to prepare for, and this gets into your executor planning thing or your uh, uh, estate planning. The most important thing is that durable power of attorney for healthcare, that you have assigned some people, some person or people to make decisions for you, and you have communicated what you want and don't want specifically to them. Because I will tell you this, and there's a lot of research on this, if there is a conflict between what seems to be in the living will and what the family is demanding, 99% of the time, the doc is going to go with what the family wants and not the living will. And that's because who's going to sue that doc? Is it this dead person or the person that's on a ventilator? Or is it this family saying, yeah, we want you to do everything to save our mother's life? So as good as living wills can be, they have their limitations. Is that durable power of attorney for health care is so important. And when you choose someone to speak for you, you make sure they're going to do what you want them to do. Just like that mo- woman who assigned her son to be the power of attorney and not her daughter, totally left her daughter out of the document. She knew he would do what she wanted to do and the daughter would not. So, Which, which, uh, which brings up the point of what I, I talk about in my book and what I, you know, hopefully say over and over again on this podcast is that there were some conversations. Clearly, there was a conversation with the mother and the son. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't a surprise that he knew that he was the one in, um, that was going to be responsible for many of those decisions. The mother knew how her daughter would react. So she put in 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 um, put the son in charge. So I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you. Um, I, but I, I feel with the living will, having the conversations with with somebody that you're going to put in uh, what you're calling a power, uh, durable power of attorney, having someone help with those um, make those decisions. You've had that conversation with them, not only with the your your ongoing um, medical care, but also, um, you know, whoever might be your executor, have those conversations with them so that this is so that you don't leave them disorganized that there isn't going to be chaos because again there's going to be a certain time period that ha- decisions have to be made and you've asked somebody to take on that favor to make those decisions on your behalf because you're not capable to do them so yeah. we're we're in agreement but it's it comes down to the conversations which would come to my next question is our living wills Someone you know with a, a durable power of attorney are they common that you see or are most families 
usually left guessing? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the States, um, I think only like 30% of the people have a, a living will. So it's uh, most all our, our numbers. The, our numbers are pretty much the same in Canada yeah. and the U.S. Yeah. Okay. So then it's thrown to the family. And in the, in this, in the States, most states have, uh, I think all states actually, have a pecking order of who, all right, so they haven't designated someone to speak for him so you there's first it's a spouse and then usually it's um the 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 majority of adult children reasonably available for contact which can you imagine a doc there's there's five children and they voted three to two to take her off the ventilator (laughs) what do you think that doc's gonna do he's gonna keep her on the vent till he gets five to zero so or, anyway, or they might flip or they might flip a coin. Oh, they might flip a coin. Yeah. Yeah. So all that has to say is usually uh, there's default you default to the family. Um, you know, sadly there's cases um where there there's a term we call unbefriend, unbefriended patient. In other words, there's no family, there's no close friends, and they get assigned a guardian by a court somewhere to make these decisions, which is horrible to put that guardian in that situation, but they have to do the best they can if they could find out uh, if there's possible to find out. But that's so rare. Most people have some family or close friend that, that can can help make these decisions. Again, the, the, the document's a good starting place. I mean, a living will is a good starting place, but it's going to take it is going to take decisions uh, down the road. It's not all black and white of, of how these decisions are made. So why do you believe from a moral, ethical, medical, and most religious viewpoints, there's no difference between withholding and withdrawing, um, but emotionally there's a world of difference. Can you share a story? Uh, you, you listed a whole bunch. Um <laughs> There are there are some people who think, uh, well, l- l- let me just do some specific treatments. Ventilators. This is a machine that is breathing for the patient. It's forcing air into the lungs of the patient. Most people, I think all people agree that the ventilator is, is an artificial means of keeping somebody alive and if we take them off, they're going to die. That's not killing the patient. It's allowing a natural death to occur. Then you get to feeding tubes, and you find it's a little harder because a lot of people say food is just a natural thing we give to everybody. Fe- feeding from infants to old folks, we often have to hand, hand feed at, at the end of life. It's so It feels so natural some people feel feeding a feeding tube is you are killing the patient if you withdraw a lot of other people don't feel that they feel it's a artificial means of getting food into the and so it's something that can be withdrawn and allow a person to have a natural death so the point of what i'm saying is people can be all over the map as far as religious for example this feeding tube thing i have i know of some catholics who say withdrawal of feeding tube is killing the patient. It's you, you can't do it because of uh, we're pro-life. But mm-hmm. I know hundreds, if not scads, of Catholic 
patients and hospitals and nurses and doctors who say, no, this is an artificial way of keeping somebody alive. You can withdraw it. It is not uh, against my pro-life views to allow a dying patient to die by taking this off. So even within particular religions that there might be, there, there people are on both sides of it. It's, there's no real, in my experience over the years and work with lots of different religions, it, it, it's not just the religion that makes the decision. People are having a hard time letting go. I have a thing, a, a slide I use in my lectures that for patients and families, end of life decisions are, are not primarily about medicine, ethics, law, or religion. They're basically emotional and spiritual in their nature. And so when people are struggling with end-of-life decisions, especially, let's say, withholding or withdrawing treatment, struggling with, can I let go? And not with, what does my religion say about this? Very few very few people say, oh, I want to talk to my to my priest or uh, imam or, or a rabbi or, you know, it's most people it's personal there are deciding whether they can let go or not not what their religion or even the medicine tells them is the right thing or wrong thing to do so that's why and again uh, full disclosure i have a chaplain so i look for spiritual and emotional things going on with patients and families but when you have especially when you have let's say you have four or five siblings and they're they're making different decisions about the patient this is the same children that came out of that same womb of this woman and they're raised in the same religion with the same values and they have different decisions and so that's why i know these it's 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 emotional it's about letting go at the end of life and some people do it more readily than others and I can't just look at religion uh, to be able to tell me what a person is going to make a decision or not. Yeah. You, you talk about in the book about comfort measures. What are the, where are they? Good point. Pain medication. We usually think of, of pain as one of the things we do not want and whatever it takes to take the pain away. They even have what they call a palliative sedation where the patient is totally sedated they have no experience of their environment because the pain has just been so out of control. It's usually, you, you just see that in the last days, maybe weeks of life, but not not uh, early on. So that would be a comfort measure. Oxygen uh, is basically a comfort measure when supplied by um, a nasal cannula or face mask. Uh, some people think, oh, that's prolonged. It, it just makes it breathing easier. Morphine for breathing is... Um, a lot of time a comfort measure. The question is, we, you know, let's say we, the family, have decided to let mom die, but just keep her comfortable. So what treatment is for comfort and what is prolonging her dying? So we might say a ventilator, that's, that's not make, making her more comfortable. That's prolonging her dying. We won't do that. But we will, she will have oxygen. And that just makes it breathing easier. It does not prolong her dying. Those are comfort measures. Comfort of, you know, just keeping a patient clean and dry. I say, you know, family being with them, holding their hand. Get up bed, get in bed with them and hold them. And, you know, this is comfort measures. Mm -hmm. um, all those types of things that, that just make the patient 
more comfortable, I think is, um, is so important. And, and so it's all, it's a lot of interpretation of what's comfort measure and what's life prolonging. And there is, is, as a matter of fact, I just, I'm getting ready to write a blog on this. There's a new, um, study out of treatment that patients got in the last 30 days of their life, elderly folks in the last 30 days of life, and like 60% get some sort of aggressive treatment. Well, one time of aggressive treatment is with advanced cancer patients. Sometimes they get um, radiation to shrink a tumor just to reduce the pain that is associated with that tumor. So radiation at times can be considered a comfort measure. We're not trying to cure the patient but we just want to make them more comfortable. Uh, whereas surgery or chemotherapy would not be considered because it doesn't make the patient more comfortable, actually might make them more uncomfortable. Yeah. So again, talk with the doc, uh, especially palliative care can get involved with patients uh, and or hospice care, either one. Yeah, I, I remember now when you're saying with the comfort measures with my mom, maybe the comfort was was um for both of us because i remember getting in the bed lying with her same thing with my uh, dad so i didn't know what that meant i just i just wanted to be my mom with my mom and my dad so now i know it was a comfort measure it probably made them oh totally good. totally yeah, for totally them bad. and you yeah my, my father was dying in 2002 and i i just so thankful for my work and, as a chaplain and uh, um my aunt and uncle had been visiting and they left. And so we're alone, my mother and my father in his bed. And I looked over at mother. She's standing on the other side of the bed. I said, mom, would you like to get up in bed with dad? And she says, can I? Now, this is a couple that shared a bed for 60 years. Yeah. She said, can I? Of course you can. And she's an old nurse too. So I said, sure. And so I, well, we, I said, let's pull dad over to this um uh, bed rail on this side you take the put the bed rail down and you get up in bed so she did and i told mama says look i'm gonna go out i'm gonna stand in the hallway and you come out and you just tell me when you're when you're done so i went in the hallway and i started bawling crying i just of course i was missing my dad but i was so thankful that i had the presence of mind to offer that to my mother and she a few minutes later came out and she said oh that was so good and uh, thank you so much yeah, we think of comfort as, you know, pain medication, keep them comfortable. Yeah, do that. But there's other things. A dry mouth, you know, sponge swabs. Yeah. Sometimes you're not going to put a feeding tube in someone because IVs, for example, they don't quench thirst. So you don't start an IV, but you do put, a, you know, a sponge swab there or ice chips or things like that. There are other things to keep a patient comfortable rather than sticking them up with an IV, which does not, it is not a comfort measure. All of those measures, you're, 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 you're making me kind of tear up because that's what I went through with, with my parents. In the book, uh, you, you, you talk about, or I should ask you, what questions should uh, families ask when it's going to help them make a decision? Yeah, I came up with, this is grow, grew over the years. This is the sixth edition of the book that it's in. And, and uh, I started out, I think, with three questions. And then one addition, I added four of the fourth question, and then I settled it on the on the fifth questions. What the first one is, and this is a place to start all discussions. What's the goal of medical care? What are we trying to accomplish with a particular treatment? Is the goal to cure the person? 
save their life or is the goal uh, just to keep them comfortable? So that is an important question. What's what's the goal? And then I already mentioned this other one, the second one, which is what does the patient think about their uh, situation? I, I used to have the question that says, what does the patient want? And I read an article a couple of years ago by a couple of docs and they wrote, um, you can't get what you want. In other words, and like, let's say someone has had a severe stroke and you ask them, well, what do you want? He says, I want to be able to walk again. Well, I'm sorry, that is not an option for you. And this is after years of rehab. So you can't get what you want. So what does the patient think about their current situation? If they could speak for themselves with, and I often ask families that, if your mom could, could make a decision for herself, what would she say? And often, most often, they would say, oh, mom wouldn't, wouldn't want this. Sometimes, and, I'm, and I totally believe families, says, mom never wanted to talk about this. She wasn't planning on dying. She wasn't planning on getting sick. We have no idea what mom would have wanted. The third question is, um, what, is the, what does the, the physician say about the uh, condition? The, well, actually, that's, that's, uh, that's my fourth question. But what are the prognoses? and probable consequences of a certain treatment plan is followed. So this would be an important thing to ask a doctor. Uh, if we do this treatment, what can we hope can happen? If we do it, if we don't do it, what can we hope can happen? And I always like to encourage families, always ask the doc, what if we just kept them comfortable and did nothing uh, as far as this treatment decision? That's an important option. If, of doing nothing. Well, let me back up. You never do nothing. What if we just concentrated on comfort measures only? So it's not the choice is not do nothing or do this aggressive treatment. The choice is between keeping them comfortable with doing comfort measures or an, an aggressive treatment. So mm -hmm. that's an important question, of course, for, for a doc. Another question is what's in the best interest of the patient now this is very subjective because some patients might say i want to be kept alive at all costs whatever it takes oh they have interpreted that as their best interest now i might look at that and say that's crazy <laughs> but i can't tell that patient and family that is not in their best interest so it's best interest is a subjective question and hopefully you can have an indication of what the patient would have wanted which is what hopefully the family would follow through uh, on that and then the last uh, question that I have the the fifth I write can I let go and just let things be and this is where you shift into um, talking about the emotional and spiritual things can I just let things be when can I let go and let things be? Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a doc contact me and he wanted, they were interested. It was a hospital. They were interested in just taking the third, uh, the excuse me, the first chapter of my book on CPR so they can hand it out to patients. They wanted to pay me. I said, we'll pay you for your, your words, but we, we would like to reprint it for our patients and families. And I says, well, yeah, get specific exactly what you want to do and get back to me and uh, I'll think about the cost and whether I want you to do that or not. So a couple of weeks later, he called me back. He says, you know, I was talking to the staff about reprinting this one chapter and to the person they said, don't do that. Do not separate the discussion about CPR from what's in the back of my book, which is the emotional and spiritual issues about letting go, about saying goodbye. And you can't separate these two. 
of talking about CPR from talking about letting go. I had a, uh, actually the same doc, I told you the story about the doc who was taking care of this patient. I was speaking at a uh, American Geriatric Society meeting in, in Virginia. And after I spoke, uh, Dr. Kranz came up and she said, let me tell you a story. I was talking to this uh, daughter of one of the patients out of this other nursing home. And a nurse was watching, standing there watching me have this conversation with the daughter and I was explaining to the daughter about CPR and how it doesn't work and and uh, the daughter finally agreed okay you, you write the do not resuscitate order and so the, the doc told me she says well the daughter left and I looked at the nurse and she had tears coming down her cheek she says and she was kind of smiling she said isn't that something she had tears coming down her I said Joanne this nurse was witnessing a daughter letting go of her mother this was a high holy moment it was sacred and i think and uh, as i've said about this doc and you, you, from what i all said yeah. she was a great physician taking care of our patients and not doing stuff to them that didn't need to be done but she totally missed that what she was doing she was helping this daughter let go and i like to say this is the one ritual we have uh, in the americas here that is constant and that is docs having discussions about cpr with patients and families and here docs are having us high spiritual conversation and they think they're talking about medicine and the families are hearing this and they're talking about letting go of mom and so um th that's why it, it's just so important that to realize what the what's going on here and so that's why i had this last question can i let go and just let things be yeah, it's it's the hardest thing that you ever that anybody has to go through. Been through it twice. It's just so hard when to is to let go. Um, in our remaining moments, any final thoughts? No, I think it's a great place to stop, and that is um, these really come down to emotional and spiritual. This is yeah, it's important to do the legal paperwork and all that kind of stuff and understand the medical side of these decisions. But usually it's coming down to just letting go and just letting things be and not, you know, prolonging the dying and, and doing a lot of things to people that just does not help them. Hank Dunn, I want to thank you. Um, where is your book available? Um, Amazon is a good place if you're just going to order one or two copies. If you want to order more than one, then you go to my uh, more than 10, let's say. The, the, my publisher gives great di discounts for 10 or more, and you get up into hundreds or thousands. And, and they're, they're bought, I think, the average order size for my book is about, a, about 100 books. So go to my website, which is hankdunn.com. And on my website, you'll also can uh, link up to my blog and subscribe to it if you want. There's also a, a, a link to um, a YouTube channel. I do short little two-minute videos. They're kind of fun uh, things I do. Not all about, most of them are not about end-of-life decisions. They're about other things, me out kayaking on a swamp somewhere. Or something like that, sure. uh, but hankdown.com is just the uh, the best place to find me, and you can contact me through that website. Uh, so th that's the thing to remember. And I, I uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and and uh, LinkedIn and all that, but all those links are there on at hankdown.com. 
Hank Dunham, author of Hard Choice for Loving People. I really want to thank you for being here on the show. I really appreciate and your book, um, having gone through it, read it, I highly recommend it because I see things that, uh, that, that I had to go through to make hard decisions. And uh, I, I feel comfortable that I did make the make the the right decisions and also understanding um, what I did was make, made it easier for me to let go. So once again, I want to thank you so much for being here on the show and hopefully we'll have you down on again down in the future because you, you tell great stories, you're a great communicator and uh, what you do helps uh, millions of uh, people. So I want to thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.